This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, high-level visits continue in PNG, this time in the form of Indonesian President Joko Widodo, who's in the country to discuss trade. Sellers of buai, a.k.a. beetlenut, fear for their livelihoods following a fresh push to have it banned in Port Moresby. You know, people survive on these things. We can't stop them. Uh, They need to have a proper place to, you know, make their living. And you might not want to hear this, but the climate pattern known as El Nino is back. We'll find out what that means today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans. So glad to have your company. But first, people in Honiara are getting frustrated after living with constant blackouts or load shedding for the past two months. It's become a daily struggle for small business owners who've had to reset their alarms to wake up at odd hours to take advantage of the intermittent power supply to meet their customers' demands. And as Chris and Rita Amanu Leong reports, the Electricity Authority says the pain will continue for a few months yet. When the power's out... Francis Civita knows it's time to whip his cake icing elsewhere. Especially the icing, yeah. When when no power, we, we have to go out and mix the icing and retain. Francis and Sharita Civita run Rita Civi Cakes. He says the constant blackouts are frustrating and bad for business. We have experienced a decrease of orders. There's still demand of cakes, but uh, we ourselves have to to decrease the number of orders we we take per day. So, so now we have to take three cakes per day just just to cater for the fridge. On the streets of Honiara, it's a mixture of experiences. Yes, Lord, bless me, worker. affecting me too much now. My work productivity has been reduced. I only work for a few hours and then I'm out of work looking for something to do. Our daily church band practice has been affected. Most times we're waiting in church for power to come on. Mifa, we're outside law, town boundaries. Mifa, I'm not really affected. Where I live has no access to electricity, but only solar. So I'm not affected by this load shedding. The Electricity Authority says the problem is beyond their control. Acting CEO for Solomon Power, Martin Sam, says four of the 11 generators are out of operation. That has uh, reduced our available generation capacity by about uh, 15 megawatts. And so that uh, actually brought our available capacity down well below the maximum demand for uh, Honiara network which is uh, 14 to uh, 16 megawatts on a daily basis. So how many people are affected by this power outage? Mr. Sam says about half of those connected to the Honiara grid. So we'll be looking at about uh, 20 to 30,000 people uh, affected on a daily basis. The uh, load sheds are uh, usually four to eight hours. Mr. Sam hopes to end load shedding by October and have sufficient capacity to maintain the demand for Honiara come Pacific Games in November. The generator that we are currently uh, have on uh, overhaul will be uh, completed by end of July. And then we also have uh, 
the other generators that uh, uh, have uh, derating issues that will be attended by August. And uh, so we'll, we'll uh, by then, should be able to increase our available uh, capacity and that should uh, ease the uh, load shedding. But for small business owner, Mr. Sivita, they're running out of patience. We, we've been uh, adjusting a, a lot. Now we don't have uh, enough time to rest because we have to wake up all through the night when the power is come to to bake all cakes. It's really restless for, for us uh, at the moment with this power. And a more reliable option to meet their customer demands is where they're headed. We're looking on getting a, a standby generator anytime soon. Cake maker Francis Savita ending that report from Chris and Rita Amanu Leong in Honiara. Well, the high-level diplomatic visits to Port Moresby continue following trips by India's Prime Minister and the US Secretary of State. The latest visitor to PNG's capital is the President of neighbouring Indonesia, Joko Widodo. He met with PNG's Prime Minister James Marape and the two agreed to try and improve economic cooperation because while the two countries share an extensive land border, not a lot of trade moves across it. Watching it all unfold was the ABC's PNG correspondent, Tim Swanson, and he joins me on the line now. Now, Tim, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Carl. Not a problem. So, uh, yeah, you were there in the thick of it all. What did Mr. Wadodo do while in Port Moresby? Yeah, well, on and on, the uh, diplomatic revolving door to Port Moresby goes. Of course, uh, you know, you mentioned that it's been a fair hub of activity, uh, of course, for the diplomatic visits here in the last few months. Look, Jocko Wadodo got in yesterday morning after his fairly brief trip to Sydney earlier in the week. Um, It was joined by a fairly large contingent from the Indonesian government. Um, And basically, it was just a day of talks down at APEC House here in Port Moresby um, after a brief, uh, you know, visit to to some other dignitaries, of course, earlier in the morning. So on the face of it, really largely was about trade and business. There was the launch of an inaugural sort of business forum between PNG and Indonesian businesses. Of course, we've just recently had the, uh, beginning and, and it was sort of the launch as well of direct flights from Bali to Port Moresby, which has many people excited as well. So on the face of it, there was really just a lot of discussion about effectively leveraging better trade and economic opportunities. Um, so we did hear from Jocko Wadodo during the launch of that business forum that he and Prime Minister Marape want our close relationship to be marked by economic cooperation. Um, and quite interestingly, we've, we've sort of heard this position from Prime Minister James Marape that he wants to sort of move on from simply discussions about the border and the like. He told that business forum that the conversations of the past must erode into relevant conversations of tomorrow on matters of commerce, trade and business. So really that's that's quite clearly how this trip is being pitched. As far as this goes for Jocko Wadodo though, it's kind of quite widely recognised a little bit. This is a bit of a farewell tour, I guess, for him, given that we've got those Indonesian elections coming up early next year. But it seems that he's quite intent on setting a legacy to improve trade and economic ties with PNG. Yeah, it's interesting to me that there hasn't been a lot of trade between the two countries historically. Um, Did they go into a little bit about, I guess, why that was and how they plan on boosting trade between the two countries? 
Well, it's of course always been a, a delicate relationship, and I'm sure we'll talk about West Papua in a, in a moment as well. Um, and and of course, you know, both countries have had much to discuss about the border. You know, of course, they've got their own security interests and issues there at the border as well, which is largely dominated discussions. But this was very much, and it was very much the the language was used to to effectively reframe the relationship. Was really what was kind of on the on the tongues of both leaders was to kind of go, look, let's ignore what's happened in the past, in the past decades, and let's look forward to how we can kind of leverage these economic opportunities. So we heard from the Trade Minister, Richard Maru, that, um, you know, he said that we've never tapped into your potential, referring to Indonesia. He spoke about the appetite for, you know, perhaps more palm oil export as well from PNG. Um, He was looking perhaps for Indonesian investment in mining and petroleum. You know, one of the interesting things as well, and it's a big push for Prime Minister Marape uh, economically, is to introduce more kind of downstream economic opportunities from the processing of materials. And he basically says that he's looking to Indonesia as, as a leader in this space as well. So... Some things we'll probably expect in the coming years as well is, is uh, you know, more PNG officials to visit Indonesia for, uh, you know, to, to learn more about those economic opportunities as well as to try and encourage more Indonesian investment in PNG. Um, so really they're, they're trying to sort of reframe and reset this relationship to be one where they hope to leverage more of that, of course, economic um, uh, ability and, and the sort of economic growth we're seeing in Indonesia. And you obviously mentioned those uh, direct flights from Port Moresby uh, to Bali earlier, which is something I'll actually be doing uh, later this year, going on a holiday <laughs> to Bali. So yeah, I can definitely see the selling point in that. Um, you're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans, and I'm chatting with the ABC's PNG correspondent, Tim Swanson. Uh, we're discussing recent diplomatic visits taking place in PNG, the latest being from Indonesian President Joko Widodo. Uh, let's move on now, Tim. Were, were, the, were there any other major announcements on the trip? Look, it was sort of light on the ground as far as as far as actual tangible announcements today. Things were very forward-looking. Like I said, it kind of sets the stage for more development in the future. You know, they they discussed uh, defence agreements. They also discussed, um, you know, on-trade, uh, potentially looking at the feasibility of a preferential trade agreement between the two countries. As far as deliverables, there was uh, some 55 million Kina or so um, from Indonesia to the Port Moresby General Hospital, which I'm sure would be greatly welcomed as well. And there was also some announcements in the space of education as well with effectively a, uh, a sort of sponsorship uh, agreement that it looks like Indonesia will sponsor about 2,000 PNG students to pursue higher education in Indonesia as well. So there's, you know, there's, there's of course, there's some some deliverables that they wanted to walk away from the trip with. But like I said, a lot of it kind of really felt like this, um, this sort of reframing and looking ahead for, for trade. Now, I want to hit on West Papua briefly. Uh, Obviously, tens of thousands of refugees from West Papua do live in PNG. Um, There's a lot of support uh, for West Papuan independence from Indonesia in PNG. Was that issue raised at all during the trip? Yeah, look, um, as far as we know, it wasn't. I mean, they held a joint uh, press conference after 
where they didn't take any questions. And those statements just simply revolved around the relationship and the economy and those sorts of opportunities that they could leverage. So there's no opportunity to ask either leader whether or not West Papua and independence was discussed, which I'm sure ultimately would be very disappointing for the many West Papuans who do live here in PNG. You know, ahead of the trip, they were calling on Prime Minister Marape to try and raise many of these issues with President Wadodo. Um, so the West Papua National Coalition for Liberation, um, you know, sought the PNG government to, to push the Indonesian government to perhaps um, recall military units from conflict areas close to the border. Um, of course, one of the big issues as well to, to provide some sort of safe space for the West Papua National Liberation Army, Army to hold negotiations with New Zealand representatives about the um, the release of the, pilot, the New Zealand pilot um, who's uh, being held in in Papua as well. So you know there's 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 a lot of issues on the plate there as far as West Papua is concerned, and it appears on face value that 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 wasn't really discussed, which I'm sure will come to the disappointment of many West Papuans who who do live here. But interestingly though, um, Joko Widodo is off to uh, Jayapura, uh, the capital of uh, the Papuan um, uh, of, of the Papuan uh, uh, province in Indonesia. Officially, he's there for a festival, but it is a very interesting location for him to visit next. Um, again, this trip is kind of largely symbolic. You know, he's he's uh, you know trying to kind of set the tone before he leaves, um, and the fact that he's heading there is very interesting. Um, and we do also understand that police there are preparing a ransom for the release of the New Zealand pilot as well. So, I mean, certainly it's clearly on their minds, but as far as if they discussed it, we don't know. And um, like I said, I'm, I'm sure that'll be very disappointing to many people here. Yeah, we are all continue to pray for that safe return of uh, Philip Mertens. Tim, last question uh, before we go. There's been reports of a, of a fatal accident involving PNG Defence Force soldiers during a, a training exercise. What's happened there? Yeah, look, a truly, I mean, just really sad, really sad story here. So as far as we understand, earlier this week, um, outside of, of um, outside of Port Moresby, there was a, a training um, accident that's occurred, or at least that's the way that it's been described by PNGDF, where two soldiers were killed. Um, and effectively, uh, we, we had a press conference last night with the commander of PNGDF, Mark Goyner, um, who, who basically said that they do carry some live ammunition with them at these training events, um, mostly for safety. Um, but effectively, it appears that instead of blanks being used in this training exercise, um, to soldiers have been shot with live ammunition. Um, so the families have, of course, been informed and, and and the commander says that an investigation is underway. There's both a military investigation running as well as a police investigation running as well. Um, and he expects that military investigation to have, um, have recommendations in effect with whether or not there were systemic failures in sort of the handling of that ammunition and kind of how they can improve in terms of Protocols, but as far as precisely how this has happened, the information was pretty light on the ground. But um, truly, a, a really devastating so, uh, story for these soldiers and, and their families, um, and one that that could really change a lot of protocols and processes in the PNGDF. Um, I think a lot of people here simply are asking the question, like, how does this happen? How do you have the live ammunition anywhere, perhaps near um, the the blanks that we're using for training? So, um, yeah, really a sad story here this week in uh, in Papua New Guinea. 
Yeah, that is tragic. And, th- and those are fair questions and our hearts do go out to the families. And I guess we can just hope that they, uh, that yeah, they, 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 they get the transparency that they're entitled to and they, and they get the answers that I'm sure they so, so desperately want. Um, Tim, thank you very much for joining us today on Pacific Beat. That's all we've got time for. Uh, fantastic analysis as always. And I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. You're welcome. That was Tim Swanston, the ABC correspondent for PNG, speaking to me there. Pacific Beat. It's Thursday, July 5, and you are listening, sorry, July 6, and you are listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Clearly, I don't know what day it is. I hope you're enjoying your morning and and getting ready for the weekend to come. It is Friday Eve, as I like to call it. But as for this Thursday, we've still got plenty more to come on today's show. We'll hear from sellers of Buai, aka Beetlenut, who are fearing for their livelihoods following a fresh push to have it banned in Port Moresby. We'll also learn about new AI technology being used to grow passion fruits, and we learn what the forecast climate pattern El Nino will mean for the Pacific later this year. Up next is News Wrap with our new presenter, actually, Aggie Tupau. You'll meet her next week. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. It's that time of the morning where we look at what's making headlines around the region. And we've got a pretty special uh, news wrap this morning. I'm uh, going to introduce you to uh, our new presenter who's actually going to be taking over from me from next week. Uh, her name is Abby Tupo. Uh, Aggie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Carl. How's it going? Oh, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. As, as you can see, it's been a, uh, it's been a, it's been a, Hell of a three weeks waiting, uh, waiting for you for you to start. We uh, we can't wait until that happens. Now we're gonna we'll talk about you and sort of where you come from and your journey sure. over here in just a second. But first, we are we obviously are a news show and we do have some. Uh, I understand you've got some some headlines for us. The first being um, some more uh, some more opinions about Japan's upcoming wastewater dumping. Yeah, well, of course, Tokyo Electric Power Company. Now they're preparing to dump 1.3 million tons uh, of contaminated water into the Pacific. Uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency say it is consistent, though, uh, with international safety standards. Uh, if you don't know, Fukushima nuclear plant was devastated by a tsunami about, I think, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the IAEA say that it's going to be a controlled, gradual release. Uh, and they're going to continue to monitor the discharge, which will be released from a tunnel about a, k- a kilometre off the Japanese coast. Obviously, the issue is that they insist the wastewater is to be treated and it will be safe. But the problem is it's still going to be radioactive. Yeah, well, we've yeah. heard a, a number of opinions uh, about this in, in recent months. Uh, opinions are very much divided, particularly mm. within the Pacific. We've, uh, we had um, Sarangal Whips Jr., the president of Palau, on the show recently. He actually threw his support behind it, saying it, 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 you know, it was safe, the attention was in mm. the detail, and then they, they, they'd done everything possible to ensure it had been treated pop- properly, uh, whereas other leaders in the Pacific, um, yeah, we're, we're hearing a different tune. So it's obviously yeah. going to be a, a massive discussion point when the Pacific Islands Forum kicks off uh, later this year in the Cook Islands, so it'll be it'll in- be interesting. Very yeah. interesting to see <laughs> what happens. Uh, let's move on, Aggie, to PNG, where they have uh, amended their criminal code. 
Yeah, this is a, an interesting one. Uh, they've amended their Criminal Code Act in order to give police more power uh, to deal with what they're calling domestic terrorists. Uh, you've got the PNG Police Commissioner, David Manning, saying the recent spate of kidnappings and ransom demands constitute domestic terrorism. Uh, so what it means is they are going to try and uh, allow the police to have a little bit more force when they go and uh, use lethal force, powers of search and seizure and detention of domestic terrorism. There's been quite a few kidnappings and ransoms, and so you can understand why they are trying to double down uh, and basically deal with what they are now calling domestic terrorism. Yeah, yeah. the, the, the pressure has definitely been on uh, the authorities in PNG lately, particularly after that uh, that horrific kidnapping yeah. that we reported on uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. Yes. I do think there's going to be a, a, lot of, a lot of red tape and, and, and legal issues around this, to, which they're, they're going to have to navigate, but hopefully mm. they can implement it in a uh, you know, successful and, and, and safe, safe way, I suppose. Now, let's move on to the Solomon Islands where <laughs> they are preparing... Um, for a Thanksgiving service, is that right? Yeah, I thought we'd end on a nice, good note. Uh, you know, idea. <laughs> um, as of today, at about 8am, uh, the Solomon Islands are preparing for their interdenominational Thanksgiving service. Now, this is basically to mark the country's 45th uh, independence anniversary celebrations ahead of, of course, tomorrow. Uh, and, you know, the public is encouraged to join in the celebrations. Why? Uh, Solomon Islands gained their political independence from Britain, well, as of today, the 7th of July, 1978. Or, no, tomorrow. Let me get that date right. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying it's the 6th yeah, all day yeah. today. Well, the 7th all day today as well. So, no, yeah. I, I know what you mean. It's that time of the year. Well, for the listeners who aren't in Australia right there, it's freezing where we are in Melbourne. So, every yeah. day and month feels like the same for this this particular period of the year. Now, Aggie, let's move on to another great story, which is that you have started with Pacific Beat. You'll yeah. be in the chair from next week. Tell us a, a little bit about yourself and your journey here. Oh, gosh. Yeah, what a journey. Uh, well, look, I thank you so much for ABC Pacific basically welcoming me, in, welcoming me into this space. Uh, I come from Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, I'm Tongan Samoan, and I was hosting a show similar to Pacific Beat. I was doing a show called Pacific Mornings. Uh, gosh, that was a three-hour show. Um, <laughs> but look, just like this space, it was all about Pacific stories. You know, we get to tell what's happening uh in New Zealand, Australia, in the backyard, all our Pacific Islands. Um, but yeah, I just got offered a job, and uh, this this came around, and I was I knew I, I knew I had to to take it. I, I think it was just a all about having to learn and grow, and uh, yeah, ABC's. ABC's a beast. <laughs> that's all I can say. Uh, you guys, uh, and I say that in a in a good way. Um, that uh, yeah, you guys have obviously given me a privilege. It's a privilege to literally be here and. Um, hopefully be able to bring something to the table uh, in regards to telling and sharing stories about our Pacific people. So, yeah. Oh, look, it yeah. definitely does feel like it's uh, it's meant to be, <laughs> that's for sure. And uh, we certainly um, all cannot wait to, to hear you get behind the mic and, and, and work, work your magic, yeah, Aggie. Thank that, you very that's for much. sure. Um, Aggie, thank you very much for joining us on Newswrap. No worries, Kyle. Appreciate it. That was Aggie Tupo joining me for Newswrap there. And, and like I said, you can, uh, you'll be hearing her a lot more regularly uh, from next week when she takes over as the Pacific Beat presenter.
Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. I don't think it was wrong that he said that he didn't want to come to the Dragons. Truth is, players have preferences. As a player, if I was asked, you know, five Super W clubs here in Australia, where I want to go, I know what my first preference is and I also know what my last preference is. Which is it? No, <laughs> Sorry, I'm not about to be on rugby.com tomorrow. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Well, Papua New Guinea's fixation with betel nut is like its obsession with rugby league, addictive and widespread. But Port Moresby's governor has had enough of the prize nut, known locally as buai. He's making another attempt at banning the selling, chewing and spitting of the betel nut, this time in a small location and not the whole city. There is support for the move, but affected buai sellers say it'll have a big impact on their livelihoods, as Thierry Lapani reports. Governor Paul Spakop has been on a mission to clamp down on buoy for years, particularly the blood-red spittle that it produces, that stains the streets and buildings of Port Moresby. He first introduced the betel nut ban in 2013, but it quickly fell apart due to difficulties enforcing it and the reluctance of people to give up the habit. He's now trying again, this time in a smaller area, Barocco, a long-time business precinct in the capital. The move comes as the city authority attempts to revamp Barocco to bring it back to its former glory as a premier shopping and business location in Port Moresby. These radical steps underscore our commitment to creating a city that is clean, healthy, safe, planned, livable for the benefit of us now and equally for the benefit of next generation and many to come. Effective immediate, immediately, little not related activities, including selling, buying, chewing, speeding, and littering of middle nut are strictly prohibited. So far, the public is generally supportive of the betel nut ban, with some recognizing the eyesore and health concerns posed by betel nut spitting. I think uh, ban is good. It will uh, cut down on some of those uh, big issues that we're facing, especially uh, around big shopping areas. And you see a lot of betel nut stains, betel nut sellers walking around selling buoy. They need to try it. Try it out at uh, uh, that Barocco area first. Uh, when they try it out there, when it works out, then they can extend to the other areas. But people also have concern for the city's ubiquitous betel nut sellers. If uh, NCD can provide a proper place for them to go and sell their boy, it's good because, you know, people survive on these things. We can't stop them. Uh, they need to have a proper place to, you know, make their living. Until the ban was put in place, Mark sold betel nut in Barocco. He's not happy. I don't know what's wrong with uh, the government. This is, that's what we do for a living. We, we sell betel nut. And now they banned us from, or banned or stop us from selling betel nut at the Barocco market. Now he's looking for a new spot to sell his wares. All right, at this very moment, I'm, I'm traveling to look for a new place to go and sell betel nut. To enforce the ban, the city authority and police have deployed police reservists to patrol the streets. Offenders caught chewing, selling or littering will have to pay fines of between 50 to 200 kina. In the past, squads of so-called city rangers terrorized betel nut sellers and were accused of using heavy-handed tactics to enforce bans. Compared to previous efforts, this latest chapter in the battle with Bironad is a more practical step, and the outcome could pave way for more bans in other parts of the city. That was Thierry Lapani reporting there from Port Moresby. 
Well, you might not want to hear this, but the climate pattern known as El Nino is back. The United Nations climate arm, the World Meteorological Organization, is telling us to brace ourselves for hotter temperatures, dry conditions and an increased bushfire risk. Tom Melville has more. Councillor Tony Allen owns a dairy farm just a couple of kilometres outside the far south coast New South Wales town of Cabago. It's a town that was made famous after a devastating fire swept through it in December 2019. Tony Allen fought the fire with his son. He was one of the lucky ones and managed to save his home and his farm. When you actually had to face the beast, you realise that you're powerless, that this was a surge of nature that was uncontrollable. Every army in the world combined couldn't have stopped this beast coming upon us, you see. Almost half of Cabago's commercial main street was wiped out, alongside hundreds of homes across the Bega district. It's an experience which has stuck with Tony Allen and with the rest of his community. And so everyone is, they're, they're not, maybe not saying much, but there's a there's a certain element within within them, a certain feeling within them saying, I hope that Christ, it never happens again. But the fear is that fire conditions are getting worse. The last few seasons have seen heavy rainfall and the perfect conditions for the bush and grasslands, which went up in smoke in 2019-20, to regenerate. To make matters worse, an RFS spokesperson has told PM that the rain has also significantly slowed hazard reduction burning activities, with only approximately 40% of planned burning completed over the past 12 months. Tony Allen says that lack of hazard reduction burning is concerning. Everyone's concerned about the fuel load. There's no doubt it's a, it's a huge issue and it's a, a very big problem that uh, someone has to at least attempt to deal with. We just can't allow it to occur again without doing something to uh, try to try to prevent such a horrific disaster occurring in the future. The RFS says it's working to complete as much hazard reduction as possible and will increase activities where conditions allow. But experts say there is a serious cause for concern with the arrival of El Nino, which is a change in global weather patterns resulting from an area of warmer than average sea surface temperatures across the equatorial Pacific Ocean. They typically last 9 to 12 months and its arrival comes with warnings of extreme weather events. El Nino's onset will increase the likelihood of record-breaking temperatures and could trigger more extreme heat in many parts of the world and the ocean. Research Director for the Climate Council, Dr Simon Bradshaw, says El Nino typically hits Australia the hardest. It is likely to see unprecedented heat extremes globally and the return of dangerous fire conditions and dry conditions to parts of Australia, especially down the east side. Of course, everything we see now is happening in the context of climate change on a planet that's warmer, uh, where we have more energy in the atmosphere. So we do sadly have to be prepared for a pretty rough few months ahead. Dr Bradshaw is worried about the forest regrowth, generating dangerous conditions for fires. We've lived through a protracted wet period, a protracted La Nina event. That means there's been extraordinary growth in grass in many parts of the country, especially down the east, also a lot of regrowth in areas that were burnt during the Black Summer fires. That does mean that when that dries out, we are primed for very dangerous fire conditions again. Fire isn't the only risk brought on by El Nino conditions. It's usually accompanied by extreme heat. Now, it is sadly possible that with this El Nino effect, we would see next year be the first individual year where temperatures globally notch um, above 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. 
But it's really the additional extremes, those really extreme hot days that are uh, you know, well above that average temperature rise that become a real hazard. Back on his dairy farm outside Cabago, Tony Allen says he'll prepare for the tough years as best he can, which is what he and his neighbours have always done. You do what you can to prepare for the tough seasons by, you know, we in our case put, a fodder, put fodder aside or have some money in the bank to buy fodder when it gets tough. But in terms of fires, well, you hope to... Uh, keep your place reasonably clean and um, reasonably tidy, but that's the individual farmer doing that. What happens out in the national parks and uh, state forests is a completely different issue, and uh, I think that's where the attention needs to be driven. That was dairy farmer Tony Allen ending that report from Tom Melville and, yeah, concerning stuff, and looks like we've got some, some drier temperatures on the horizon. Well, Australian passion fruit has come a long way, tasty enough to be eaten all on its own. But farmers say passion fruit yields are now declining and they need, and they need new, new varieties to secure their future. Now scientists in Queensland are going to use artificial intelligence to breed the, the perfect passion fruit. Jennifer Nichols reports. They're really big, aren't they? That's the size you want. The growers like it because real small fruit is very expensive to harvest. Keith Paxton has been growing passion fruit on Queensland's Sunshine Coast for three decades. His nickname in the industry is Mr Passion Fruit. Back in the 50s, it was sort of bred for the pavlova lovers, but then as years have gone by, we've tried to develop varieties that eat on their own, like it doesn't have to be added to some other product. It's very challenging to grow good passion fruit, and it's a beautiful fruit to eat. The industry is worth around $24 million a year, and it's facing a big problem. No matter how well growers care for their vines, yields of the fruit are declining. Our current varieties are getting a bit tired and a bit old, and they're starting to lose their vigour. So we have over the years, since the late 90s, had a funded breeding program from levies and government funding as well. We have two varieties that we bred in that time, but they were back in the early days. And they're the varieties Misty Gem and Sweetheart that are now getting a little bit past their date. You might think that once your passion fruit vines are established, they'll keep providing good fruit. But vines only live around six years and need to be replaced. Most new plants are grown by taking cuttings and grafting them onto sturdy rootstock. But it's like making a photocopy of a photocopy. Eventually, some quality will be lost. So a new variety is the answer. That's where plant geneticist Dr Mo Alam from the University of Queensland comes in. So I'm really excited uh, with this program because because we know that industry is facing few problems, so I'm excited to solve those problems and that if that can help the industry and to increase the profitability as well. He's sequencing the genes of some of the existing passion fruit varieties and plans to use artificial intelligence to predict which combinations are most likely to be successful. You want to use machine learning and deep learning technology to find out the best model that can help us to predict the performance of the variety. Dr Mo Alam thinks crossbreeding local passion fruits with Brazilian varieties could be part of the solution. So we have narrow diversity in our population. So what I want to do, I want to expand the diversity 
the more diverse population will give me more opportunity to develop new varieties. Keith Paxton's daughter Megan Crowhurst has a passion fruit nursery. Every year she grows up to 80,000 passion fruit plants to be sent off to producers across Queensland and New South Wales. She says a new variety would need to meet strict standards. The criteria of passion fruit is quite extensive. You have to have colour, you have to have fragrance, flavour. All of the criteria needs to be ticked off. The varieties that we're growing at the moment unfortunately have basically passed their use by date. Unbelievably important to keep the future of the industry. The clock is ticking. Keith Paxton says Vietnam is trying to push into the Australian market. We also got imports, the possibility of imports coming into the country. So we do need to get going with our varietal material and improve it. There is an application from Vietnam. They're a huge producer, like far greater than what we do. The thing that we have to do is improve our end of the field and provide consumers with something that they're happy with. Yeah, really interesting story. Keith Paxton ending that report from Jennifer Nichols and Agnes Randall. It's not the first report we've had in recent days of, uh, of AI being implemented in agriculture. We heard from seasonal workers in Timor-Leste last week who got to operate fruit-picking robots uh, in Tasmania. So it's certainly an evolving industry and, uh, yeah, can't wait to see how it continues to evolve and, and how Pacific Islanders uh, are, are involved in it going forward. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by me, Paola Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots, and hip-hop to house music. From across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Fale, Fridays at 4pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Well, Australia is being warned it risks missing out on attractive, vital, skilled migrants because of decades-long delays in assessing applications for parents to join them in their new home. A federal government commissioned review of the migration system shows there's a huge backlog of applications, with some visa applicants facing wait times of 30 to 50 years. Political reporter Nicole Hegarty has more. Engineer Nitin Parwal moved to Australia 20 years ago as a skilled migrant. Five years ago, he applied for permanent visas for his parents to join him from India, but with wait times of up to 50 years, he's now rethinking that decision. You're not going to get professionals if you tell them, hey, you come here by the way your parents won't be allowed. And the Adelaide residents telling others to reconsider migrating to Australia if they want their parents to follow. So just think twice before you make that move of There are other OECD countries where you can think about that. Uh, Canada is definitely welcoming more and US. So definitely consider those two countries before you consider Australia home. That is my advice and that has been my advice to all my friends and family back home in India. There are more than half a dozen types of parenting visas, but even after paying between a few thousand and fifty thousand dollars per applicant and waiting up to half a century, a visa is not guaranteed. Anam Shahid moved to Australia as a skilled migrant a decade ago and is now a citizen living on the Gold Coast. She's been looking at bringing her parents from Pakistan but says the wait times are ridiculous. These options are not valid options. Whose parents have 30 years to wait? 
this is a big struggle that me and my sister are facing at the moment and uh, having to consider things like leaving, possibly going back. And all these things, of course, we don't want to do because for us, Australia is our home now. Rajwan Singh is a registered migration agent in Sydney. You also see temporary visa refusals, you know, like parents uh, being refused even for the best visas. I mean, as a welcoming nation, we, we are not playing our part. A federal government commissioned review of the migration system shows that in 2022, the backlog of parent visa applications had ballooned to 120,000, some applicants facing wait times of 30 to 50 years. The report said this may be detracting from Australia's reputation as an attractive, welcoming migrant destination. Rajwant Singh warns it's a turnoff for skilled migrants that the country is keen to attract. People feel obligated to care for their uh, their parents. So if if it is not easy or extremely difficult or even impossible to reunite with their parents, so it can uh, impact their long-term uh, migration decisions. The review suggests two options, scrapping permanent visas altogether or introducing a random electronic draw or lottery system. Like Nitin Parwal, Anam Shahid says having support from parents is crucial to helping skilled workers settle in. They would like to contribute to the society just by helping take care of our children. For example, they enable us to work full time, uh, especially in the current like situation where there's so much inflation. Everyone's doing two jobs instead of one. Both are hoping something will change soon. Nicole Hegarty reporting there. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat today. Recapping our top story, we heard from ABC correspondent Tim Swanston, who was on the ground for a diplomatic meeting between PNG and Indonesia to boost trade ties. Some 55 million Kina or so um, from Indonesia to the Port Moresby General Hospital, which I'm sure would be greatly welcomed as well. And there was also some announcements in the space of education as well with effectively a uh, a sort of sponsorship uh, agreement that it looks like Indonesia will sponsor about 2,000 PNG students to pursue higher education in Indonesia as well. Yeah, it was an interesting chat, that one. Oh, we'll be back at the same time at 6am tomorrow for our sports show. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned on ABC Radio Australia because the news is next. Following by Nisha Daily, you'll find our top stories on our website. Just type Pacific Beat and Radio Radio Australia into your search engine or via the ABC Pacific page. Again, I'm Kyle Evans. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Have a great day.